It was late one fall in Halloween land, and the air had quite a chill. Against the moon, a skeleton sat alone upon a hill. He was tall and thin, with a bat bow tie. Jack Skellington was his name. He was tired and bored in Halloween land. Everything was always the same. I'm sick of the scaring, the terror, the fright. I'm tired of being something that goes bump in the night. I'm bored with leering my horrible glances, and my feet hurt from dancing those skeleton dances. I don't like graveyards, and I need something new. There must be more to life than just yelling, BOO! Then out from a grave with a curl and a twist came a whimpering, whining, spectral mist. It was a little ghost dog with a faint little bark and a jack-o'-lantern nose that glowed in the dark. It was Jack's dog, Zero, the best friend he had. But Jack hardly noticed, which made Zero sad. All that night and through the next day, Jack wandered and walked. He was filled with dismay. Then, deep in the forest, just before night, Jack came upon an amazing sight. Not twenty feet from the spot where he stood were three massive doorways carved in wood. He stood before them, completely in awe, his gaze transfixed by one special door. Entranced and excited, with a slight sense of worry, Jack opened the door to a white, windy flurry. Jack didn't know it. But he'd fallen down in the middle of a place called Christmas Town. Immersed in the light, Jack was no longer haunted. He had finally found the feeling he wanted. And so that his friends wouldn't think him a liar, he took the present-filled stockings that hung by the fire. He took candy and toys that were stacked on the shelves and a picture of Santa with all of his elves. He took lights and ornaments, and the star from the tree, and from the Christmas town sign, he took the big letter C. He picked up everything that sparkled or glowed. He even picked up a handful of snow. He grabbed it all, and without being seen, he took it all back to Halloween. Back in Halloween, a group of Jack's peers stared in amazement at his Christmas souvenirs. For this wondrous vision, none were prepared. Most were excited, though a few were quite scared. For the next few days, while it lightninged and thundered, Jack sat alone and obsessively wondered, why is it they get to spread laughter and cheer while we stalk the graveyards, spreading panic and fear? Well, I, I could be Santa, and I could spread cheer. Why does he get to do it year after year? Outraged by injustice, Jack thought, and he thought. Then he got an idea. Yes, yes, why not? In Christmas Town, Santa was making some toys, when through the din he heard a soft noise. He answered the door, and to his surprise, he saw weird little creatures in strange disguise. They were altogether ugly 
and rather petite. As they opened their sacks, they yelled, Trick or treat! Then a confused Santa was shoved into a sack and taken to Halloween to see Mastermind Jack. In Halloween, everyone gathered once more, for they'd never seen a Santa before. And as they cautiously gazed at this strange old man, Jack related to Santa his masterful plan. My dear Mr. Claus, I think it's a crime that you've got to be Santa all the time. But now, I will give presents, and I will spread cheer. We're changing places. I'm Santa this year. It is I who will say, Merry Christmas to you. So you may lie in my coffin, creak doors, and yell, Boo! And please, Mr. Claus, don't think ill of my plan, for I'll do the best Santa job that I can. And though Jack and his friends thought they'd do a good job, their idea of Christmas was still quite uh, macabre. They were packed up and ready on Christmas Eve day when Jack hitched his reindeer to his sleek coffin sleigh. But on Christmas Eve, as they were about to begin, a Halloween fog slowly rolled in. Jack said, we can't leave. This fog is just too thick. There will be no Christmas, and I can't be St. Nick. Then a small glowing light pierced through the fog. What could it be? It was Zero, Jack's dog. Jack said, Zero, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? And to be so needed was Zero's great dream, so he joyously flew to the head of the team. And as the skeletal sleigh started its ghostly flight, Jack cackled, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. It was the nightmare before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was peaceful, not even a mouse. The stockings, all hung by the chimney with care, when opened that morning would cause quite a scare. The children, all nestled so snug in their beds, would have nightmares of monsters and skeleton heads. The moon that hung over the new-fallen snow cast an eerie pall over the city below, and Santa Claus' laughter now sounded like groans, and the jingling bells like chattering bones. And what to their wondering eyes should appear? But a coffin sleigh with skeleton deer and a skeletal driver so ugly and sick they knew in a moment this can't be Saint Nick. From house to house with a true sense of joy, Jack happily issued each present and toy. From rooftop to rooftop he jumped and he skipped, leaving presents that seemed to be straight from a crypt. Unaware that the world was in panic and fear, Jack merrily spread his own brand of cheer. He visited the house of Susie and Dave. They got a Gumby and Pokey from the grave. Then onto the home of little Jane Neiman. She got a baby doll possessed by a demon. A monstrous train with tentacle tracks. A ghoulish puppet wielding an axe. A man-eating plant disguised 
as a wreath and a vampire teddy bear with very sharp teeth. There were screams of terror, but Jack didn't hear it. He was much too involved with his own Christmas spirit. Jack finally looked down from his dark, starry frights and saw the commotion, the noise, and the light. Why, they're celebrating. It looks like such fun. They're thanking me for the good job that I've done. But what he thought were fireworks meant as goodwill were bullets and missiles intended to kill him. Then amidst the barrage of artillery fire, Jack urged Zero to go higher and higher, and away they all flew like the storm of a thistle until they were hit by a well-guided missile. And as they fell on the cemetery way out of sight, it was heard, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Jack pulled himself up on a large stone cross, and from there he reviewed his incredible loss. I thought I could be Santa. I had such belief. Jack was confused and filled with great grief. Not knowing where to turn, he looked toward the sky. Then he slumped on the grave and he started to cry. And as Zero and Jack lay crumpled on the ground, they suddenly heard... A familiar sound. My dear Jack, said Santa, I applaud your intent. I know wreaking such havoc was not what you meant. And so you were sad and feeling quite blue. But taking over Christmas was the wrong thing to do. I hope you realize Halloween's the right place for you. There's a lot more, Jack, that I'd like to say. But now I must hurry but it's almost Christmas Day. Then he jumped in his sleigh, and with a wink of an eye, he said, Merry Christmas, and he bid them goodbye. Back home, Jack was sad, but then, like a dream, Santa brought Christmas to the land of Halloween. Hello and welcome to the Alex Cast Halloween Spectacular. And by spectacular, I mean, you know, like just be basically sort of Halloween themed a little bit. Uh, this is going to be a bonus episode. We're in, there's going to be another episode this week featuring John C. Myers. It's already been recorded. It's going to come out probably tomorrow. This is coming out on All Hallows Eve Eve. You know, basically in time for Halloween. Whatever. I'm basically just putting this out because um, I always want to do something for Halloween. Uh, I like playing that Tim Burton thing that opened the show. That was the um, poem, The Nightmare Before Christmas, the original poem that Tim Burton wrote, read by Sir Christopher Lee of lots of horror movie fame and the bad guy from Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, I think. He was the other guy that kind of looks like Gandalf, but isn't Gandalf, because his name was... Uh, what was his name? What was the bad guy from... Uh, Baromir? Faramir. 
Uh, Saruman. He played Saruman. So anyway, there's that. And that's it. Uh, I have in with me tonight, uh, my guest is Sam Hain, uh, which is a really dumb joke. The, the, uh, the Celtic festival that, uh, that Halloween is based on is Samhain, or it's a bunch of ways to say it, but Samhain is, is probably the, uh, Samhain is the most, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm saying, the, the way you're supposed to say it in modern American English. I don't know, how would you word that? I guess it would be correct modern, because that's not really the way you say it, you know, it's the proper way to say it here and now, though, does that make sense? Like, I talk about this with Latin a lot, where proper Latin pronunciation isn't correct, but we pronounce it in a way that's correct. So, like, you would say um, Caesar, like Julius Caesar is the way that we say that guy's name. But the way they would have said it, and the proper way to say it is Julius Kaiser. But it is correct to say Julius Caesar in, in you know, 21st century now. So, you know, it's Samhain. Anyway. Point is, every time I read Samhain on a piece of paper, I read it as Sam Hain, because that's the way it's spelled. But then I imagine some guy named Sam with the last name Hain. Hi, my name's Sam Hain. Welcome. To your nightmares! Ooh, spooky! <laughs> I have nothing prepared for this. I'm uh, basically just coming in to say Happy Halloween. Uh, I'm going to flip some tarot cards, and then I'm going to do uh, the second half of that story that I started last week. And that's it. So... Really, not a whole lot of, not a whole lot of uh, uh, things to 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 do. You know what I'm saying? Yes, you do. So, what, what do we want to talk about uh, in the time that we have here? I don't know. Okay, so I found a story. I'll post the story. Um, let's see if I can kind of. I was going to maybe just read the pertinent parts, but it's not really. That's it. Blah, 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 blah. blah. Okay, here. Uh, let's see if we can't read this. Uh, this is about witches in their brooms. The real boundary that was between the conscious waking mind and the civilization and the dark, fearful and unknown regions of the unconscious wilderness. It was simply literalized and projected into the physical environment. In reality, the night traveler's flight into the wilderness was a trance. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Um... Uh, it refers to an Italian case, which was a woman having rubbed flying ointment on her body, fell into a trance, which she could not be roused. When she finally came round on her own accord, she declared that she had been flying over seas and mountains and could not be convinced otherwise, though she had, uh, though others had witnessed her body lying in an entranced state. Um, so they're talking about flying ointments. Oh, by the way, this is from dailygrail.com. I'll, I'll post the link on the show notes, which no one reads, but I assure you, you should read them for they are great. They're full of show noty goodness. Uh, yeah, dailygrail.com talks about it. So they're talking about how um, the, the, the idea of a uh, of flying uh, witch on her broom comes from a uh, basically wise women, you know, shamanic ladies tripping their face off on, you know, whatever trippies they had back then, ergot or whatever. Now, the, f the fun part of this, and it depends how, how much fun uh, you, you want to take from it, is that one of the theories is that the way to administer this 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 
um, psychedelic, this flying ointment, is is topically uh, through a sensitive area of the body. That's right. They coat their broom in it and shove it up their cooch. That's right, ladies. Uh, so when you see an adorable little kid running around dressed as a witch with a broomstick, know that she's basically running around with a dildo that's covered in, in LSD. I'm not really exaggerating at all. Uh, it's one of the theories of <clears throat> where the whole uh, witch with a broom mythos comes from. Pardon me as I take a drink, a sip of water. I don't know why you'd be listening to this show. It's impossible. This is an impossibly bad show. I'm talking. So, the, um, yeah, so, which is uh, one of the theories is that that's where the thing is. They would take hallucinogenics in their, in their rights <clears throat> and, uh, you know, report that they're flying around as one does while you're tripping on hallucinogenics. Uh, and it became associated with that because that was one of the ways of, uh, you know, topical things. Cause I don't know. I don't know why you would do it that way. Um, I should probably read the whole article. I'm not going to read the whole article to you. It's just gonna, anyway, read the article. It's fun. Uh, if you want to, you know, hear about ladies putting psychedelics in their, in their gooch. Good times had by all. Uh, what else can we talk about? Halloween. I live in Portland, Oregon. I don't see a lot of uh, trick-or-treaters around here, which is good because um, I don't have money for candy. But I also live in an apartment where there's no accessibility to the outside world, so um, they won't do it. I talked about We talked about it years ago, but um, where I grew up, uh, so I'm recording this the night before Halloween. Where I grew up, the night before Halloween was called Goosey Night. That's right, the night of Goosey. Goosey Night is uh, where the rest of the country refer to as a you know, cabbage night or mischief night or devil's night or squash night or judgment night or demon night or or black night 2000 or various other pinball games of the 1980s that night was uh people would go around with with toilet paper shaving cream eggs and uh kind of just be vandals. I don't know why that would happen on the night before Halloween. Never made a lot of sense to me. But it seems to be a kind of tradition across the world, or at least across the country. The reason it doesn't make sense is, so when you go to a house on Halloween, uh, as, as you all may know, is uh, the, the refrain is, trick or treat. Yeah, that's what you say, trick or treat. And so then they give you some treats, right? One would think that the point of saying trick-or-treat is that the trick would be, you know, covering your house in eggs and shaving cream and toilet paper. That's the the negative repercussion that's available in the dualistic statement trick or treat. You would say, oh, I will take a, a, a treat, please. Thank you. You will not get my trick. And if you have no treat for me, I shall trick you. Trick you, meaning, ha, you were tricked. Your house used to not have toilet paper and eggs on it. Now it does. What a wily trick. I don't, okay, so it's not much of a trick, but either way, it would make more sense that way that there's a, there's a duality between the two statements. Not just trick or treat is the thing we're saying. You know, it's just, these are, these are syllables and phonemes that, that really say nothing. We could be saying, floop a flop leap, floop a flop leap, Mrs. Jorgensen, floop a flop leap to you. 
good lady, but you don't use a trick or treat. And since there's no trick involved, I don't know. Maybe the trick is, no, I'm not going to say that. That was going to get really dark. Let's not do that at all. <laughs> oh, there's a, a thing in psychology that's referred to as catastrophic thinking. And I, and I fell prey to this where it's, if, if you've ever walked on uh you know, like a high ridge or something, you're like, I'm just going to throw myself off. Not that like, even if you're like in a really great mood and you're like, I'm in the middle of this like wonderful hike or something. <clears throat> it's just, you think of the worst thing possible. It's referred to as catastrophic thinking. It's the same thing. as like, if you're in like a, like a place where it'd be inappropriate to yell, like you're, you have to kind of stop yourself from yelling or the thought is, well, what would happen if I just scream something horrible right now? And sometimes uh, over the course of the show where, in a faltering moment, which, which let's face it, they're pretty goddamn often on the solo shows. Uh, catastrophic thinking comes in and you're like, man, that's something that humans shouldn't say out loud to, to other people. And I didn't because I'm trying to grow as a human being. <laughs> this is such nonsense. I'm going to flip over some tarot cards. This is going to be your the the future of the audience of the Alex cast uh, in the in the coming month. I'm going to do a three-card flip. Some people refer to this as a past, present, and future layout. Um, I sort of read it that way. I don't tell you the truth. I don't really do three-card layouts all that often. But when I do, boy, are there three of them. And that's a lie because usually I do a cross on the top, which doesn't make sense. Let's talk to you about tarot cards a little bit since I'm good at tarot. Ignore the shuffling sounds in the background. You may have heard some of it before because I had the deck in my hand and... It's hard not to shuffle. So, um, how much do I want to describe? I've talked about tarot on the show a lot. I mean, probably not in a while, but one of the ways that I like to use a deck is doing any kind of layout you want. The one I use is a 15 card layout. Uh, that's, I guess, I guess it's the order template orientis layout. I'm not really sure. Um, I got it from a, the book of the Thoth tarot deck uh that layout goes essentially okay <clears throat> there's three in the center three top right three top left three bottom left three bottom right and you lay out by going one in the center then you go to uh the which way is it i do it i do it my way so i go one two i i go basically two one three so first card up then to the left and to the right and then you start going around going, um, so you go to the top right, top left, bottom left, bottom right, and then you do the same sequence. It doesn't really matter what order you put them in. The point is you have 15 cards, three in the center, and then those, uh, then those other groupings. At center is the nature of the querent, the problem, the how things work. Um, top right and top left are possible futures. Um Future is a relative term in tarot, but for me, I, I refer to it as futures. Outcomes might be a better one if you want to do more of a science-y, less mystical, less uh, future-telling tarot. Um, bottom left is the um, – how would you describe it? The – I don't know how to describe it in human terms. Is uh, – psychological kind of stuff. Uh, I wonder if I have, let's hope I have my, oh, I do have my book here. How do they describe it? Um, hold on one second. Yeah. So they describe it as a, 
Oh, they just got the same way I do. <laughs> so card 6, 10, 14. Assist the querent in making whatever decision may be necessary. They indicate the psychological basis and, uh, and implications of the issue. So it's kind of what you're thinking about. And then the bottom right cards are the karmic cards, the, uh, how do I want to describe it? The forces outside of your control, your karma, your any deities on your side, any bad luck, any good luck, any that, just the stuff outside of your control. That's the spiritual side. It could also be um, the situation you're in if it is unchangeable. So um, left could be psycho psychology based on you know what you're doing and how you're doing stuff. So that could be like the the changes you can make to have the layout and the possible futures come true. And then the stuff on the right and stuff that can't change. So if you're in, you know, I don't know if you're you know, in a bad living situation or something like that. Uh, those are those I tend to think of more mystically. So it's, you know, kind of the mystical forces that work on you. Mystical forces. Sorry, I forgot it's a Halloween episode. So I gotta, I gotta do spooky voices. Sorry. Anyway. Uh, there's a bunch of layouts. The other famous one is the Celtic cross. And that's how a lot of the uh, writer Waite Smith readers lay out. Uh, that one is a, I think it's a nine card layout. God, I haven't done the I haven't done the Celtic cross. Let me look it up for you while we're while we're talking. The Celtic cross is also um, one of wrestler Sheamus's finishing moves. Celtic cross tarot. Uh, yeah, it's tarot spelled tarot. By the way, just to give you guys a break. Yeah, so the Celtic cross is a. Oh, it's ten cards. Oh, anyway. Uh, there's a cross at center and then whatever. I'm not going to describe the whole thing. Gives a shit. I don't like that reading. It's, I don't find it useful. I mean, it might be useful. Who knows? It's a fucking tarot reading. It's all weird. And then, uh, the other one, so the three card, three cards, past, present, future, or like, um, could be just influence on you. I like doing past, present, future, uh, past could also be psychology. Present could be, you know, your current mindset and then future is way to get out of it or like means to an end or sort of. So, uh, that one, I also do weird. I set up, I do the center card first, then left and right. So center card, we have lust, uh, one of the higher arcana, AKA trumps, which, uh, as a, as a hilarious joke, I said, as a, in my support of Hillary, I'm going to throw out, uh, uh, all of my tarot decks, you know, so the higher arcana is not there. Hilarious. On the left, we have the Ace of Discs in other decks called Pentacles. And on the right, for the Wheel of Fortune. Ooh, the Wheel of Fortune. So this is a, a ridiculously charged layout. Uh, pretty ridiculous, guys. Uh, the higher arcana cards are the ones that are sort of the big boss daddies of a tarot deck. So having two show up in a three card layout is pretty intense. And then, uh, an ACE is almost, almost like, it's almost the, <clears throat> how would you describe it? It's almost like the, the, the top of the not Trumps. So like ACEs are pretty, like they're like the, um, representative card of the rest of the suit. So like, like discs are, material world stuff grounded kind of things and then so ace is like the overall things of all the cards so like you know one through uh you know one through ten and then then the court cards 
So, but the ace is the one that kind of is the overall kind of thematic concern. So, like ace disc being uh, the past is something kind of you know material grounded kind of thing. So, like uh, how would how would you put it? Like a um, earth, you know. Uh, that sort of thing. It's earth and money. I'm trying to make it sound like cooler than like some kind of mystical hooju. It's earth, money, that sort of thing. Uh, the nature of the queer or like, you know, present is lust. One of the higher arcana. Now this is a really confusing one because, uh, the higher arcana, as I said, is kind of runs things. And lust is, you'll, you'll find it strange to know is that, uh, kind of lusty. It's, <laughs> I was trying to, I was trying to, make it seem uh more mystical but again it's basically rutting uh fucking it can also it there's also a lot of energy behind it it's a it's a forceful card so it's got like um how would you put like a movement sort of card you know uh basically like lots of energy and power enacted uh in the same way like uh, you know sexual energy being the same thing as key or chi or whatever so the idea of, of, you know, reservoirs of energy being available to you. And that plays into the next one, which is pretty crazy that, as I said, that came up is uh, the next card up was the uh, the Wheel of Fortune, or in this deck, it's just called Fortune. And that literally means the change of fortune, uh, usually in in a good uh, in a good way, um, which is which is fun. It also implies as I was saying, like the karma cards for when I was talking about the 15 card layout, the, the, that would almost be like those cards all into one. So it's like forces outside your control. So, um, yeah, so we got some kind of energy, we got uh material energy, wealth and change. So some things could be coming that are good, especially about money and fucking. So good on you audience. Now, as I was saying before, I do crosses. So crosses are, these are not 100% traditional tarot, but, um, what you do is basically to confirm a reading, deny a reading, or just try to figure something else more, you just flip a card across either one section, one card, or whatever. So in this, I would do it across all three. And is, ooh, the devil. N another higher arcana. This is fucking crazy, guys. You're in for some action. So the devil is, it's not, I mean, it's not evil. It's, it's, uh... Again, materialism, devil probably should be associated. The devil's almost like materialism, but not in the same way that like, not in the same way that discs are. It's uh, kind of greed almost, um, temptation, uh, you know, the kind of the devilly stuff, like the more like the talking, talking you into things sort of devil. Um, it's also related to the, the more goat aspect of like, labor, hard work, you know, uh, chugging away at things, uh, and can be related to money as well. So yeah, guys, so you're probably, you're probably going to fuck a lot and maybe for money. So good on you. Yeah. I'm not really sure what that, what that really means, but there is like, a, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of higher power swirling around here and you should be proud of that. So all you guys out there listening know that you have higher order energies swirling around you in, in a vortex of energy. And that if anything goes wrong, it's not your fault. And if anything goes right, I mean, you could probably say it's, you know, it's all on you. You did, you did well. 
But I mean, really, that's not your fault either. There's nothing, you know, you're, you're it's out of control here. You're spiraling out of control. It's not true. You're not spiraling out of control. I just realized because that ace is that ace of disc is grounding earthly. So all these changes are within your control. And it's probably that all the fruits of your labors are going to come to path fruition. The wheel of fortune is going to click into the next step. Things are happening. So congratulations on that. We're all proud of here at the home office. That's it. This was a Halloween episode, I guess. Halloween episode. Spooky. Creatures of the night. What sweet music they make. There. Halloween. Uh, coming up is the end of that story that I started last week. The Theravada machine. And this one is slightly better uh, read. The elocution slightly better. I'm relearning how to read. Which sounded weird. But I meant, you know, it's a different muscle to read allowed from paper and that's a thing so that's it from all of us here at halloween uh, central to all of you out there in sam hain land i wish you good luck and godspeed and uh oh oh uh facebook.com slash the standard pdx uh 14 northeast 22nd that is a bar that i like to go to they always have people dressed up in wonderful halloween costumes around halloween so you can go and enjoy it's it's uh, the, the winter season now, so there's uh, uh, hot drinks so cheap. So 14 Northeast 22nd, uh, facebook.com slash the standard PDX. So yes, without further ado, here is part two of the Theravada machine, and I will see you uh, tomorrow or the next day for the episode with John C. Myers. Spooky, blah, ha, ha, et cetera, et cetera. Bye. The Theravada machine, part two. I was eating lunch at the kitchen table. I had made egg salad and was eating it between slices of toasted rye bread. The toasted rye chafed the corners of my mouth a bit. I wished that I hadn't toasted it, but I thought, who am I to complain? The men on the floor are dealing with far worse than dry toast injury. I ate my sandwich silently while watching the machine, the two men, and one dusty pile surrounding it. I finished my sandwich and licked the corner of my mouth. I hated that feeling. I looked at the machine and wondered if I should do something. I wished that I knew more about machines and engineering. Then I could be useful. I hated feeling so useless in my own space. Excuse me, men on the floor, I said. I'm sorry to belabor the point, but maybe you'd like some help today? I can't help but notice that progress seems to have stalled. They sat without any sign that they had heard me. The machine was as quiet as ever. The machine seemed ominous in just how much nothing it was doing. The machine seemed to be feeding off the ambient nothing, concentrating it into a super nothing, daring itself to move a molecule. I watched the nothing machine. I saw it do nothing. Please understand me when I say that it did nothing. It sat there like a verb. It radiated nothing and imbued the room with nothing. It sat without noise or movement. I shuddered. Well, I guess if you need me, you know where to find me. Can I at least offer you some food or refreshment? I won't be offended if you say no. They sat on the blue carpet. A mode of dust feathered itself down onto the machine. The leader. I called the nearest one the wall, the leader. Finally turned his head to me. The dust mode must have acted as some kind of switch. You may sit. His voice sounded like the creaking of old floorboards, like rusted hinges forced into action. Oh, thank you, I said. Where? With the barest tilt of his head, he indicated the dust pile that was once his third. Oh, should I move him first, or just, you know, sit in him? The man on the blanket, the leader, simply moved his head again, indicating the pile of clothes and dust. I felt awkward sitting in his friend, but I was never much of an engineer, 
so I left it to the expert. I sat down, cross-legged, on top of the pile that was once was the third man sitting on the blue blanket in my kitchen. I looked into the leader's dull blue eyes and waited. Nothing happened. And not the all-encompassing, disturbing nothing of the machine, but the simple, normal, everyday nothing of sitting on a blanket with some of the fellas. I looked at the one-armed man. He offered no more information than the leader. I wondered if I should do something. I sat there for what seemed like an hour before my girlfriend came unexpectedly into the kitchen. She wasn't due home till dinner. She said. What? I'm sorry, I can't hear you properly. Shouldn't you be at school? She said. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Let me stand up, I said, standing. The army leader shot out at blinding speed to stop me. I panicked and drew my arm away while falling into the wall. He missed his attempted grab. My head put a head-shaped dent in the drywall. Oh my, are you okay? My girlfriend exclaimed. I'm okay. I broke the wall with my head, though. That's unfortunate, I said. It's fine. We can fix it, she said calmly. Why didn't you answer me? I was screaming for nearly an hour. What? You just got here, I said. No, I've been yelling and trying to pull you up from the floor, but there was something stopping my arm. I was concerned, she said. At that moment, I realized just how much I loved her. She was a very sweet person. Oh, I'm so sorry, I said. I was trying to help the man on the blue carpet in my kitchen. Why are you home so early? Early? I'm right on time. Really? I just had lunch. What time is it? It's just about six, she said, sounding worried. Really? I didn't notice how long I was there. Did that happen with you when you visited them? No, time worked perfectly back then, she said. It's just as well. I didn't have much to do today anyway. What would you like to do for dinner? I guess we could go to the Indian place with the good naan, she said. That would be lovely, I said. Let me wash up and get some clean clothes. These are covered in dust. Okay, I'll watch some TV while you're at it. Good. If the men on the blue carpet in the kitchen ask why I left, please tell them that I wanted to have dinner with you. Okay, wash well, she said and kissed my cheek. I went to the bathroom to change. The machine did nothing. Even the earlier ominous nothing was long gone. My girlfriend was a waitress at the time. She was studying, when not waitressing or being with me, to be a psychiatrist. It was hard at times to balance everything, but she was a very talented and dedicated person. I went to work every day. The people in my office never noticed the thing. I left thoughts of the men and their machine at home, for the most part. They were our secret, my girlfriend and I. The men on my carpet had stopped working. They showed no emotion on their faces, but we thought they looked sad. The blue blanket was co collecting a film of dust. Day by day, the city-like machine looked colder and colder. The apartment worked in two ways. The life of my girlfriend and I, and the life of the two men and one pile of dusty clothes on the kitchen floor. It was a delicate balance. We balanced it well. It was 49 days after I had sat with the men on the kitchen floor. My girlfriend was jittery. Her morning routine was changed. She did not sit in the kitchen. She did not change from her sleeping clothes. I sat in bed and listened to her pace. She entered her bedroom after 30 minutes of pacing, holding a thermometer. Are you sick? I asked. No, she responded. I'm not sick. I'm pregnant with your child. Really? That's fantastic, I said, standing to embrace her. We hugged and she made noises of contentment. I felt the wet tip of the thermometer on my back. I realized it was a pregnancy test. You're happy about this? She asked. I can't think of anything that would make me happier, I said. That's very good to hear. I was worried. Nothing to be worried about. I'm incredibly happy to be the other half of this. 
I think we will make very good parents, I said. Yes, I think we will, she said. We held each other silently for a long time. We both called out of work. It was one of the best moments of my life. It was a few days after she told me of our coming baby that we decided to try and talk to the men in my kitchen again. We put it off for weeks. My girlfriend and I were doing very, very well. She loved me. I loved her. We waited anxiously through our work days to see each other at night. The apartment was darker in those days. The hum hasn't returned, but we were perfect and happy. The two men sat at their blue blanket. The pile of clothes that once was the third man had been almost totally absorbed into the machine, much like the detached arm some months previous. We sat at the kitchen table, sipping from glasses frosted from the cold, filtered water. We looked at each other, and without a word, decided that today was the day to try and talk to them again. We had discussed it many times. It was easy to approach them once our decision was made. Um, hi, I said. The two men did not move. The two men did nothing to show that they had ever heard me. Um, hi, my girlfriend said. The two men did not move. The two men showed no sign of having heard either me or my girlfriend. Well, the thing is, we're worried about you guys. The apartment used to be nice and vibrating. We had that lovely blue light to wake up to. We had you three, too, working away at the machine. Now, well, it seems just sad. It seems like you gave up, I said. The two men did not stir. Can you hear us? My girlfriend asked. The two men did not react. Can we help? Would you like a, some water or food? I asked. The two men did not answer. My girlfriend stood up and approached the one-armed man. Wait, I yelped. Don't touch him. We keep breaking them. I know. That's why I was going for the one-armed one. I thought I could try and rouse him by shaking the shoulder of the missing arm. You know, sort of minimize possible damage. Oh, yes, that's probably a good idea. Be careful, I said pointlessly. I knew that she would always be careful. She reached out her hand and touched the one-armed man on the shoulder. Sir? He did not respond. She looked at me, her hand resting gently on him. I nodded. She, ever so gently, shook his shoulder. The man with one arm collapsed into dust and uniform. Oh no, she yelled as she scooted away from the dust and empty cloth. I reached out and grasped her arm gently. It was warm and firm. She twisted to look over her shoulder at me. Her eyes looked so sad. I lifted her shirt collar over her mouth. Just to be safe. For the baby. I have no idea what these guys are made of. That's smart, she said in a voice trembling on the verge of tears. Oh honey, please don't be sad. I should have tried to arouse them. This wasn't your fault. These things happen. There was nothing we could do, I said, trying to calm her. Oh no, she said weeping. I know, I know, but they were so kind, so delicate. They were, I agreed. There's still one left. And the machine. What do we do? She asked. He looks like the other two before they crumbled. The machine is silent. We should try and water him. They went dusty. Maybe some water would help. The blood helped the machine. Maybe some water or blood could help. My girlfriend agreed with me. She stood up and got the filtered carafe of cold water from the refrigerator. She sat down next to me at the table. The water in the craft shook from her nervous hand. I'll do it, I said. She smiled and nodded. Her eyes were red and watery. I took the craft of cold, filtered water into my hand and stood. The blue blanket and the last man were motionless. I stepped over to him. I made visible signs in front of his eyes that I was going to try and give him water. He showed no signs of understanding. I touched his chin as gently as I could. His eyes remained open, still and unseeing. I tipped his chin back and was pleasantly surprised that he did not go to dust. I lightly parted his lips and was happy that he did not go to dust. I lifted the carafe of cold, filtered water to his lips. I poured a small amount of water into his mouth. 
I heard my girlfriend gasp before I saw what startled her. The last man on a blue blanket on my kitchen floor was leaking from his lower back. He was turning to a mass of foaming gray bubbles. I stopped pouring water immediately, but it was too late. He collapsed into a pile of wet, muddy cloth. I stood up and took in the scene. The blanket held a machine that looked like a city. On the blanket, a triangle was marked. One point, a wet pile of mud and cloth. One point, a uniform covered in dust. And on the last, a cloud of dust settling, slowly down. Does this mean it's finished? She asked. I don't know. It would be sad if they all went to dust before it was completed. My girlfriend held me from the side. I held her in return. The three men in my kitchen no longer were three men. They were disintegrated. Gone. Only their work remained. Though silent. Lifeless. The next year, we, my girlfriend, our child, and I, were sitting on the floor in front of the couch. Our baby was fat and happy. We were young and happy. Her crib sat in the corner, and we played on the floor. My wife smiled at me when we felt the floor. A subtle hum was emanating from the corner of a blue blanket hanging from the crib. Our baby giggled as the apartment turned a pale, familiar blue. End. <laughs>